This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. My name is Ali Mesbahian, and I will be your host for today. The theme of this episode has to do with the notion of meaningful consent in contractual relationships. Specifically, we will be talking about the terms of service agreements between big tech corporations such as Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Twitter with their consumers, basically us. In fact, we will be talking about a 2017 Supreme Court decision of Canada involving Facebook. Here to discuss these issues is Angela Swan. She is a professor at Osgoode Hall Law School, as well as an expert in the law of contracts. Professor Swan, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you, and we're very delighted to have you. So the facts of this case is that Miss Douay, who was a Facebook consumer since 2007, suddenly realizes that Facebook has been using her information for advertising purposes. In particular, she liked a page on Facebook and Facebook decided to extract her profile picture as well as her name and sell that information to advertisers. Understandably, Miss Douay gets upset uh, because of the violation of her privacy rights and decides to sue Facebook along with 1.8 million other British Columbian residents in a class action. Now, the issues as I understand it, or the issue, is not primarily about privacy rights, but it's about another hurdle that Ms. Douay has to overcome in order to win her case. And that hurdle has to do with a stipulation in her terms of service agreement with Facebook, which basically states that Uh, Any legal dispute uh, between Facebook and their consumers has to be adjudicated in California. This is whereas obviously Ms. Douay uh, prefers to adjudicate the matter in British Columbia. So could you please give our listeners um, an elaboration and an overview of uh, the legal issues at hand? Um, Let me just suggest that, in fact, the case is about um, privacy because the effect of the decision to enforce the contract would be to deny Ms. Dewey and all her other people involved in the class action any right at all uh, to take advantage of the BC Privacy Act, which um, gives her a right of action in these circumstances. The legal background to it is a problem that kind of first arose in the 19th century with um, railways. Railways were the first uh, organizations to make contracts, what I'm going to call them mass-produced contracts. When thousands of people started to ride the railways, middle of the 19th century, railways introduced contracts to control their liability. And um, these contracts then, in various ways, um, raised the issue which Ali has asked me to talk about, which is the problem of consent. And the problem is a huge problem, because if you think about it, uh, take Canada, for example, it's hard to get an actual figure, but anywhere up to about 25% of people apparently can't read well enough to be able to read what's shown to them. Another percentage in Canada, I'm not sure how large it is, 
be people who can't read English or French. And so you have a huge number of people for whom contractual terms are essentially meaningless or nonsense. They can't read them. The law contract is based on, assumption on, is that people have consented to be bound by the terms that are offered to them. But in these situations, consent has to mean nothing. And so, what one way of looking at the Douay case is to say, with respect to Miss Douay, I don't care, you know, what you agreed to. Your right to vindicate your right under the BC Privacy Act trumps any contractual undertakings you may have made. That's an important issue in the case because I think that's it's kind of it's a dry case. He's simply concerned about uh, the application of the form selection clause, as Ali mentioned, choosing California, because the effect of that isn't just a contractual problem, it is a, what the Supreme Court of Canada calls a quasi-constitutional problem, because rights to privacy are now regarded by the courts as quasi-constitutional. So the case raises huge issues of the scope of private ordering in the context characterized by statutory rights, in this case, statutory right to privacy. I can say more, but is that okay at the moment? Oh, uh, that was perfectly fine. Thank you. So, as you mentioned, there is a issue as to what Miss A and Facebook consumers in general are really consenting to because these terms of service agreements are long and convoluted and they raise the issue of enforceability, which the court indeed does discuss. In particular, they adopt a two-step test to see whether the forum selection clause is enforceable or not. So what is that test, and what is its justification? The court saw this principally as a case in what's called the conflict of laws. That's an arcane area of the law, which I'm going to say every law student, court of motion, should take, because you never understand when you should take a course on it, but which is basically and fundamentally um, um, badly stated and badly applied. It should not exist. The two-step stage deals with what are called exclusive atonement clauses. An atonement clause is a clause in a contract whereby somebody consents to the jurisdiction of a particular court. Consider a Canadian company doing business in the U.S. There are 50 states there, and there are crazy juries. And the income doesn't want to be subject to an Alabama jury, which can do rather crazy things. And so they put in their contract what's called a forum selection clause, as Ali describes it. This simply is a clause which says you can bring your litigation, for example, only in Ontario, or perhaps only in New York, or perhaps Delaware, where the courts are relatively trustworthy. Alabama courts and juries are scary as hell. And so the rule adopted that laid down a case called Zedi Pompey is a two-stage process dealing with what are called exclusive form selection clauses, exclusive atonement clauses. And they say that basically these clauses would be enforced subject to the person caught unpleasantly by them to showing strong cause. Now the problem with that approach is that it works not badly in connection with commercial contracts. Zedai Pompey, 
momentous and so on, were all cases involving corporations able to go after themselves. The test doesn't fit very well in the consumer context. And you see this in the fact that three members of the court, three go to Canada, held Miss Dewey to her clause because she said she hadn't shown strong cause. The majority, the majority held that she had shown strong cause, and the fourth uh, majority, Madame Bella, held the whole contract unenforceable. The whole, it didn't meet the first stage of the two-part test. So the court did not, as I wish it had, talk enough about contracts. They talk much too much about conflicts. Okay? Because simply as a consumer case, the real problem is the re reality of Miss Dewey's consent. I'm going to make an extreme statement here. I think that with contracts like the contract in Facebook and its customers, or even contracts like contracts between uh, an ISP provider and its customers, what we want is to revert to a statutory basis. We want to say these things are out of the control of contracts, because all contracts can't deal with them, because it is nonsense to talk of somebody who agrees to something when they can't read or understand it. On the other hand, you know of a model by which the person, let's say, who wants to be on Facebook and get the benefits of it, uh, can get those without consent to the terms. So it's a horrendously difficult problem, and I think the solution actually lies in legislation. And we see this example of this, and for example, Consumer Protection Act, which imposes restrictions on what those who sell things to service consumers uh, can do in the contracts, and also in bodies like the CRTC, which controls the terms that ISP and telephone providers uh, can offer their services. So it's a major problem, but I think the problem has to be taken out of all contracts. So if I understood correctly, your solution is that legislation should make certain contractual provisions completely off limits because they are deeply unfair. You could do it two ways. You could do that, or you could say, here are the terms from which you're going to offer your service and let be provided. You could do the opposite way and just say, we're going to impose upon you contractual terms. As opposed to saying, you can't do various things. Here's the, here's the package of stuff govern your relation. And I'm glad that you mentioned the dissenting argument because I did run into a sentence by the dissent that I found a bit odd and I'll quote it. It is established that an enforceable contract may be formed by clicking an appropriately designated online icon, end quote. But isn't this really the problem? And, you know, the court didn't really elaborate on why they think that you know, just clicking an online icon could turn into an enforceable contract. And I was wondering what your thoughts on this is. But the thing becomes, it's become unmanageable. It's a monster. Uh, I, when I first got a, a Blackberry some years ago, I hate, I don't like cell phones, I don't like anything interesting, but I, I had to get a case for it. And my son-in-law told me that Bell was selling cases for Blackberries uh, at a reasonable price. 1995 or something for a BlackBerry. So I went online to buy it. I had to click one of these things I agree, and being me, I wanted to see the terms of the contract, which actually I could see. So I 
got the terms of the contract I was clicking onto, and I actually saved it to my computer. I could look at it and read what it said. It was 22 pages long. It was completely, un even for me, and I got some, you know, I got some basic understanding, I couldn't follow it. I think at one point the drafter mixed up the words debit and credit, which is very serious. So I think at that time, his or her eyes had glazed over with the pile of verbal junk being dumped <laughs> on the page. It's utterly ridiculous to have a 22-page contract for a $20 sale. And so what we have is we have these armies of lawyers working for Bell, or Facebook, wherever it might be, churning out these ridiculous contracts, and they use them for everything. And so it, what liability can Bell have for selling me a BlackBerry case? It really can't cause personal injury. It really can't cause serious economic harm. Isn't risk anybody can insure against. It's a nothing sale. And so if you make people sign on the wretched contracts, the whole thing becomes utterly meaningless. It just it's a complete charade or facade behind which we should do something about it. I mean, I thoroughly support the arguments you're seeing coming out of the US Congress that we have to control not only, you know. Amazon, Apple, Google, and so on, but a whole bunch of other people, Bell Canada, and I'm sure Toronto Hydro, and so on, utterly unreasonable terms imposed on consumers. So given that we're dealing with a multinational corporation like Facebook, it seems that a discussion of international law will at some point come into play, and the courts do discuss it. So the downside of enforcing the forum selection clause is that it would virtually open the opportunity for Facebook to evade the laws of foreign jurisdictions because if the matter is indeed adjudicated or if it were to be adjudicated in California, then you know there is no guarantee that the courts in California will have any regard to the laws in British Columbia. But the flip side of that coin is not as clear to me. So I was wondering if you can elaborate on what the effects of not enforcing the forum selection clause may be. I'd say, I'd say anybody doing business in Canada, you come here, invite Canadians, whether BC or Ontario, to deal with you. You deal with them on their terms. You can impose whatever you want, but if you don't they go to California and then they say, no, they will not. They'll deal with the contract entirely on their terms. You chose to come here, you invited people from BC or Ontario, wherever, Saskatchewan, PEI, and so on. You deal with them on their terms. I don't care where your head office is. I don't care what your worldwide membership is. If you're going to sell your product in BC, you comply with BC law. You give BC people the rights they have under BC law. Anything else is ridiculous. I don't. I would not treat these as international at all. Yes, Facebook business across the world, but I'm sorry. In Ontario, you are an Ontario company, and Ontario law will apply to you whether you like it or not. Now, now it's different if I were to seek out uh, a supplier in, say, California, and you know, offer to do business with it there. Maybe they could say California law applies. 
but not if you come into this place, into this province, and solicit me here. Going on a website to, in California to sign on isn't isn't what isn't isn't the important thing. It's the important thing that Facebook solicits cap solicits members, as they call where they are members, uh, in Ontario or BC. So another aspect of this case had to do with the issue of bargaining power. And the majority did really take issue with the fact that there is a huge imbalance of power between a BC resident and a multi-billion dollar corporation like Facebook, who really just produces these contracts in mass and presents them as a take it or leave it situation uh, for their consumers or their would-be consumers. And all this, you know, has a degree of anonymity in it. And I was wondering if you could speak to this dynamic in terms of the values of individual autonomy and informed decision-making, which the law of contracts is meant to protect. Like I said earlier, and you certainly um, have implied, Ali, is that the contracting process is based on an assumption that the parties are, I'll use an old word, free agents bargaining on their own behalf. This is simply not true with most consumer contracts and certainly with most online contracts. Um, yes, they can be dressed up as a bargain. I can click a box that says, I agree, which looks like consent. But of course, reality behind that consent is simply uh, completely ridiculous. It's not consent in any real sense. Because even if I could read the words of the contract, I wouldn't understand the significance. Even if Miss Dewey had carefully read the terms of the contract, uh, and had, you know, seen the form selection clause, she would not then have understood its impact in connection with her rights under the BC Privacy Act. And so we're, we're arguing about contracts in a way in which, I mean, it's like being, being Mimsy in the Borogoves, to use, you know, from the Lewis Carroll's poem, The Jabberwock. We're doing something. Whatever it is we're doing, we're not doing contracts. It's something quite distant, you know. It's just—it's a complete distortion of the idea behind the contract. That said, the problem will be next. I see the only solution is legislation. The only solution is to impose upon both parties terms that are fair and reasonable. I don't see any other solution to it. And for example, if you look at something like the Insurance Act, okay, it imposes all kinds of terms on the parties. Insurance policy, not all, the sum is left for negotiation, but many of them. It creates a structure within which the parties sign on for insurance or not. Once they've signed on, the act applies, and a whole bunch of terms apply to the parties, like it or not. But if you had legislative terms, you wouldn't have a form selection clause. It would be irrelevant because you're in a Facebook, if you do business in Ontario, these are the terms that apply to you. Like it or not, you don't like it, get over it, and don't do business in Ontario. Okay. That's quite, you know that that's your choice. You're not going to have a choice to impose upon people in Ontario wholly unreasonable clauses and expect them to be enforceable. So this case was a very close call. It was a four to three decision in favor of Miss Duay, and given that indeed this was a close call. I was wondering what the implications of this case were for 
you know, cases that came after it? Well, you see it coming up in another important case you go to Canada, the, the Uber and Heller case. Much the same facts in the sense that Mr. Heller was asked to sign a, to sign a contract which forced him to arbitrate any disputes he had with Uber in the Netherlands. It was accepted by all the courts that for him to start an act, that procedure would cost him $14,500 US. He makes at most $30,000 a year Canadian. Now, the problem, a bunch of problems with that, three court in Uber and Heller said that's unconscionable. It's an abuse of the power that you have to force Mr. Heller to make something so one-sided and unfair. Now, I'd go further, and I'd point out similarities between the Heller case and Douay case. The problem in Heller is the nature of the relation between a person like Mr. Heller working for Uber and Uber. Obviously, and you see this coming up all around you, is Mr. Heller an employee or something else, a contractor. If he's an employee, all kinds of things follow from that characterization. He gets vacation pay, he gets minimum wage legislation applied, all kinds of benefits flow from characterization of an employee. Three court held is unfair, but a more important reason would be that the Netherlands, which is a choice of law in that case, is not the appropriate place, nor the laws of which, not the appropriate laws, to decide whether Mr. Heller in Ontario is or is not an employee. That is a hugely important question for Ontario. How do we treat people in the so-called gig economy? Do we treat them as employees or something else? That's a decision to be made by a body or a person subject to Ontario law, the Employment Standards Act, Ontario Labor Relations Act. These are the statutes that set out the values of Ontario with respect to employees. Okay? So um, we have to assert a right as the, the, as the government uh, to determine these questions by our own law. We're not going to then allow a contract to take that question away from an Ontario tribunal. That's a little bit off the question. But the important thing is, we have to look at what these clauses do and say, no, we're not going to tolerate a clause that does that. It abuses or threatens with abuse Canadians who are entitled to protection given them by statute. So is the problem that these contracts of adhesion, which they are now called these take-it-or-leave-it contracts, are being done in an online setting which is fundamentally unclear to consumers? Or is the problem with take-it-or-leave-it contracts per se? Uh, because presumably, if it's a take-it-or-leave-it contract, I would still have no bargaining power. Well, I'll just uh, answer your question a bit differently. One of the uh, legal scholars that I greatly admire is Carl Llewellyn. He was the author of Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code. He was an American um, kind of flourished in the first half of the 20th century. Interesting man. Uh, he was part of his rather Welsh name. He was, well, uh, he 
uh, enlisted in the German side in the opening years of the first opening days of the First World War, the German army on the on the German side. He left that and returned to the States. He tried to join the American army when the Americans entered the First World War, but the Americans said, "No, you can't join us because if you are captured, you executed as a traitor because you served on their side first. In any case, went on to a distinguished career as a legal scholar. And what he said was, and it really makes sense, if you look at these contracts, less so and some more so in others, there are a set of dickered terms. I mean, Facebook could offer you different, I don't know whether they do or not, but different levels of service. You, know, uh, you can get optional add-ins, uh, for example, in buying a car, you can get by an extended warranty. So you can, there's a dickered terms. That by dickered he meant, I can choose from the options I'm offered you. Offered. That's quintessentially a contractual process. He then said, with respect to the other terms, the undickered terms, if you were to kind of scratch the typical consumer, that person might say, those terms should be reasonable, not unfair. And so for example, it's clearly possible for a supplier to say, if you don't pay, we'll cut you off. Okay? If you abuse it, we can cut you off. Uh, ISPs, for example, will typically cut off people who use their uh, internet connection for spam. So we can do all these things. And so what you want to do then is pick out on what points can the parties bargain. When they can't bargain, then the terms must be reasonable. Uh, it avoids the need for uh, legislation, um, but it does leave some uncertainty. But after a while, the uncertainty would be removed uh, because obviously litigation would then settle out what terms are reasonable, what terms are not. So there are ways of dealing with it which make a, a deeper or kind of lesser nod towards con contract values. It is important to recognize that these contracts, you know, are not imposed. I mean, nobody has to go on Facebook. You don't have much choice, you know, with your Toronto Hydro and so on. You people have to buy electricity from, from it. Um, but there is a way in which you can permit the coexistence of some contractual freedom with imposed terms. So as we're approaching the end of this interview, I would like to get your thoughts again on the solution to the problem of entering contracts with big tech corporations. So as you mentioned, even though the problem is contractual, the solution really lies in legislation. Um, so I guess the final question that I have, and admittedly it is a broad question, but how can the law even understand the intricacies of data and information technology in order to effectively regulate them? So, for instance, would legislation say something to the effect of no data extraction whatsoever? Or would they say, well, you can extract data insofar as conditions X, Y and Z are met, one of them which would be some sort of effective communication, some clear communication between big tech corporations and their consumers? Well, I think the problem here is that, you know, I'm not even sure I know what data mining involves. I've got some idea. I'm not sure I know the ins and outs of it. And so, quite frankly, I'm terrified of it because I don't know what might be used, you know, what, how my information might be used or misused. And so, for example, I was asked to give money to a 
course, supported by a friend of mine, but to give money on this site, which is an American site, those working in Canada, had to consent to uh, use of cookies. I don't like cookies, and cookies were justified on the ground, not any benefit to me, but the information it gave them. And so I refused to do that. I refused to make a donation on that site. I'll give my friend a check instead, because we need to, these things are out of control, because no consumer, they, people who are not consumers, understand what the hell is going on, and we have to be protected from the abuses. I mean, the things that you hear about um, of when these things are out of control are quite terrifying. Um, I mean, that's a totally different issue of data mining, but the way in which people can be shamed on uh, Twitter and Facebook and so on is to me quite terrifying. I'm not on Facebook, because I am, but I can't get off it. I can't access my account, apparently. A cousin put me on it years ago. I won't go on Twitter, but you know, but these things, in an important sense, the law has not caught up with what technology is doing, and we have a whole bunch of important decisions to make so that we can catch up. Okay, then. Well, uh, Professor Swan, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us and for sharing your insights on uh, the issue of contracts and data rights and consent. All right. Have a good week. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.